Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I'm joined, as always, by Kevin High and Tight Hume, our photo editor. How are you doing today, Kevin? Not so high and tight. How's it going, man? <laughs> yeah, when was when was the last time you got a, uh, a haircut there? Uh, I think I got it at the, like maybe the last weekend in July. Um, I saw the SF Weekly story uh, about San Mateo County still being open for services like haircuts, salons, and uh, I immediately called one of the uh, barber shops mentioned in the article and went down there on Saturday and got my hair cut. They had like uh, air humidifiers going and fans and she took my temperature with like a scanner when I walked in the door. Oh, wow. Uh, gave me like hand sanitizer. I wore a mask the whole time. It was totally on the up and up uh, and it was it was good. So, but you know, hair grows pretty rapidly. So I'm pretty desperately in need of one again. I am jealous that you got a professional job over the uh, first several months of the pandemic. uh, I, my hair was already long going in and it got just ridiculously long. And then uh, during that heat wave we had a couple weeks back, I just couldn't stand it anymore. So um, I got my fiance to break out the shears and um, it's better than I could have done by myself. (laughs) I'd call, I'd call it a quarantine cut for sure. Yeah, I mean, I've seen you buzz your hair back in the day, so I know what you could have done by yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 about <laughs> the long and short of it. Um, anyway, uh, last week on the podcast, we sunk our soft liberal hands into the hypocrisy of the GOP and the preposterous spectacle that was the Republican National Convention. Mm-hmm. And so, in the interest of being fair and balanced, I thought we'd take a look at a bit of hypocrisy coming from the other side of the aisle. And... Speaking of being fair and balanced, the story I'd like to talk to you about today, Kevin, was brought to us courtesy of Fox News. (sighs) (laughs) Air trigger warning. They absolutely blew the lid off this one. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi went to a salon in Cow Hollow the other day for a blowout. Do you know what a blowout is, Kevin? Um, I mean, it's probably got something to do with like a hair dryer or something, right? Yeah. I mean, I only, I only have some kind of vague idea. It's a, it's a styling session. I think it's like a wash and a dry, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the problem wasn't that she went to get her hair done. It's that she booked a private appointment inside and currently in the city and County of San Francisco per COVID-19 rules and regulations. You aren't supposed to do that. Um, as you found out, and why you went to San Mateo the other uh, month, two mm-hmm. months, two months ago, July, you said? Yeah, like a, maybe a month and a, like a month and a, like a couple weeks ago, like six weeks ago. Yeah. And um, then it, then things got locked up again. Um, since then, some places have been allowed to do haircuts outside. Um, and the uh, city of San Francisco just allowed them outside. But it wasn't just that she went and got a haircut and that the the video was leaked um, by the woman who owned the hair salon to Fox News. Um, it was that after the report on Fox News came out, that's when things really started to get interesting. Because as the dude would say, new <laughs> shit has come to light, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> the salon owners leaked security camera footage of Pelosi walking through the place without a mask on came out. Mm-hmm. Then Pelosi said through a spokesman that it was all a setup. Then the salon's owner, Eric Kakayas, denied that it was a setup. 
Then Pelosi doubled down with a press conference. Then the actual stylist who gave Pelosi the blowout and furthermore said that Caius has been totally fine with booking on the down low hair appointments for months. Oh my God. So yeah. And then, then Caius took out the nuclear option. She went on Tucker Carlson uh, to talk with the former bow tie aficionado um, who proceeded to, he's from San Francisco originally, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. I am shocked. Yeah. Anyway, the former bow tie aficionado proceeded to call her tale, and I quote, one of the most heartbreaking stories I've heard in a long time. Oh my God, really? Yeah. So now what we have is one of the most bizarre flashpoints in the history of the American culture wars that, that like I think I can remember. Um, you know, people remember where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. People remember <laughs> where they were when the Berlin Wall fell, when the Twin Towers were hit. And now... They'll remember where they were when Nancy Pelosi got that blowout. What? Wait, what's what's a blowout again? <laughs> Isn't that when someone else puts hairspray in your hair and blow dries it for you? Ah, uh, yes, that's what it is. Uh. Anyway, none of this is to excuse Pelosi or really dismiss Caius's story as laughable. Um, Pelosi, first of all, should have known better, without a doubt. Um, yeah. The optics of it are just terrible, and it feels like one of the rules don't uh, apply to the politicians kinds of things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just not a good look. Not saying about her hair, but it's just not a good look. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? That's what I want to see. I want to see the before and after. We've seen the before of Nancy walking through the salon with wet hair. You know, was it worth it? (laughs) I mean, I saw photos uh, afterwards, and, you know, she's got that haircut that she kind of seems to have. It looks good, but you know, I mean, I don't know. It seems like a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah. For what's happened since. Yeah. And speaking of what uh, has happened since, like, I, I don't know if Caius expected all this to happen. And like so many hairstylists, she's undoubtedly in like a really bad spot. Um, mm-hmm. I understand why she would say that Pelosi visiting her salon felt like a slap in the face, which is what she told the reporter who penned the original Fox News piece. Mm-hmm. The personal services industry, which includes the likes of barbers, personal trainers, massage therapists, and on and on, has been essentially really hard hit in San Francisco due to COVID-19 restrictions. They've been more or less shut down since the beginning of all this, and it was only at the end of last week, as I mentioned earlier, that they got the okay to work outside, which many can't take advantage of because they don't have parking lots. and. Mm-hmm there's regulations about what kinds of chemicals can be used outside and there's been smoke in the air and all of this stuff. So again, um, you know, to be fair to her, it's a shitty situation. So then she gave this, she gave this press conference too, and I'm an empathetic person and um, it's easy to say that she should have thought of all this beforehand, but it's just, it's tough. She, she ended up kind of getting overwhelmed in the press conference. She cried And I I just, I feel bad. Should I feel bad? I mean, I can understand how, you know, you can be empathetic to this, this woman, Um, you know, but like she's, I mean, she's trying to take care of her, her business, her people, but like, you know, I mean, I, I think it's been kind of understood that a lot of hairstylists, hairdressers, barbers have kind of gone underground in this whole, you know, pandemic. Um, And this really isn't like if she's been running, you know, illegal haircuts out of this salon, that's sort of like, 
it's kind of on her, you know, like she's been kind of allowing this to happen under her watch. And, you know, uh, by going to Fox news, uh, instead of say, you know, as a weekly or SF examiner or the, yeah, Bible, that's where she should have gone, you know, <laughs> instead of going to the local outlets by taking it straight to the national, you know, the, the big national right-wing outlet, she, she kind of, you know, chose her side in all of this. Instead of making it a news story, it was trying to turn it into the, the culture wars again, you know? Yeah, it's a little, some, some virtual, some virtue signaling there for exactly, sure. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, in a statement she read on camera to a, a group of reporters yesterday, uh, she said, quote, if a woman in a high risk age group who spends much of her time on TV warning about the dangers of COVID-19 feels safe and comfortable in a San Francisco salon and can be responsible for being cautious and mindful, why can't the rest of San Francisco and the rest of America do that too? That was my point. End quote. But I think like you said, it feels like maybe that wasn't her point um, initially, but you know, I don't know her mind. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't know her exact mindset, you know, uh, we can't predict what she's actually trying to do. It, it seems like she had an agenda and I can understand why, you know, hairstylists, uh, barbers, all, you know, people that take care of other people's things like that, uh, are feeling under duress and have been wanting to try to get back to work and have been feeling like they just, were you know waiting and waiting and waiting and it wasn't coming so i understand that part of it but you know i just don't agree with the way that she went about it i do have some good news at least for would-be renters in san francisco rents are continuing to drop for one and two bedroom apartments the median price of san francisco rent has dropped more than 14 percent over last year so awesome that's cool Anyway, you can read about the saga of Nancy Pelosi's hair appointment and San Francisco's falling rents at our website, sfweekly.com. And coming up on the podcast, we'll speak with Ricky Reed. Remember, Kevin? He came up a few weeks ago on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, man. White Boy Wasted. Yeah. The East, Bay born, <laughs> the East Bay born musician, wallpaper frontman, and Lizzo producer has a new album out called The Room. And we'll talk with Michael Huffman, general manager of Seven Stills, the San Francisco-based brewer, distiller, bar, and restaurant, about what it's been like weathering the pandemic. And we'll get the inside scoop on their beer cocktail, the Hazy McLaren. Mm, that sounds good. Yeah. Stay tuned. and producer known for many, many things from as far back as the early aughts when he fronted two local bands, Locale AM and Facing New York, 
through his time as the outlandish leader of East Bay Party Rockers Wallpaper and on to his in-demand production work with a wide variety of well-known artists from Megan Trainer to 21 Pilots to Lizzo. He recently released a new collaborative album, The Room, which was recorded remotely and with the help of some very talented artists, including Jim James of My Morning Jacket, Leon Bridges, Alessia Cara, and The Dirty Projectors. Welcome to the podcast, Riggy. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, so uh, let's just jump right into it and you can give yeah. us the setup. How did The Room come to be? Wow. Um, you know, I had thought about making another uh an album after wallpaper, sort of a, a true solo project early, maybe late 2016, early 2017. I put out a couple of songs, um, express myself, Joan of Arc, be the one. And I was ramping into this moment. And then, um, my wife and I had our daughter may in March, 2017. And I hadn't realized exactly how much having a child was going to, uh, say change our plans to put it lightly one of those plans was putting out this record um so you know i sort of put it on a back burner and i thought about it over the last couple years a few different times when is the right time to put this out how whatever and you know my wife would always say she'd say you know you're gonna know when when the time comes you're gonna know don't force it don't push it you're gonna know you're going to need to put this out at some point. And right now you don't need to. So just wait. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, fast forward to March 2020, um, the arrival of the pandemic, uh, we started sheltering in place on Friday, Thursday or Friday, March 13th. I remember it was the 13th. And um, like every other kind of, you know, uh, music industry, person i was like ah, i have a bright idea let's do let's do a live stream you know like everyone else mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and you know no one on my team had experience with this of, ha of having any kind of live stream production so we we all just kind of figured it out the very first episode was broadcast from my kitchen with you know multiple cutout like drops in audio drops in videos just insane mm -hmm. and um about 10 episodes in to the live stream. I had a really rough week. I had been sort of over functioning. Um, I tend to do that in my anxious moments. I, I uh, sort of overdo it. I'm the person who, you know, will, will make um, checklists and to-do lists and kind of give myself a lot of tasks to try to avoid sitting with the, fe the feeling I'm feeling on the inside, which truly, you know, in March, April, and still a lot to this day is a lot of fear and uncertainty. Um, so I'd had a really rough week uh, this week of the 10th uh, episode of the live stream, and I had received a keyboard pass from a friend of mine named Terrace Martin, just a, a pass of like Rhodes chords, Fender Rhodes. And um, I was like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm going to work on this on the show. And I, I, I sent it to St. Panther, an artist signed to Nice Life. And was like, hey, if you can put a vocal on this, I know it's only like two hours until I have the show, but I'll work on it tonight. If you can throw something on this, it'll be cool. Okay. And so during the show, I listened to the vocal 
she had laid down on Terrace's keyboard part for the first time live. I didn't listen to it before airtime. And the combination of the lyric, the melody, everything that she sang on those chords on that day in this year for me, it hit me. It hit me like few other things have hit me in my life. And I, I cried in the middle of the live stream, which is not something I'm want to do. It's not, it's not my <laughs> brand or anything, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not like a, 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 you know, crying for clicks YouTuber here. Like I, I, right. it just, it cracked me open in front of everybody watching. And as I proceeded to produce and finish that song, the, the words that Laura, my wife had been saying to me for the past couple of years, started ringing in my head you know you're gonna know you're gonna feel it you're gonna need to put out music you're gonna know and that night i knew i had started making my new album okay and uh just for those who aren't familiar the 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 live sessions you're talking about those were uh nice nice life live right we 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 just call them nice live nice live okay yeah and are you still doing those uh I am. Yes. I actually had our, um, our big finale for the record release on Thursday night. We had, um, performances from, oh man, Leon Bridges, Kiana Lede, the Dirty Projectors, Lito Pimienta. It was a, an amazing night. Don Cheadle came through. I got to interview him. Um, nice. It was a very, very special live. Cool. So what, what episode number was that? That was number 40. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, I've listened to the, the, the album a few times now, and uh, it's definitely a more subdued sound than what I had expected coming into this record. And I think that's partly because the last time I was really listening to your music heavily was with Ricky Reed is real. And I was like, when did that come out? And I was like, oh my God, that came out a long time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, time flies. Um, so, I mean, and then I thought, you know, so surely you're, you're in a different place now. You're a father. Uh, you've been nominated for pro uh, producer of the year Grammy. You've helped create some of the uh, most recognizable songs of the decade. And this is uh, all a long windup to basically ask um, what, what were the moods and the themes that you were trying to capture uh, on this album or, or what did they, what did that become as it took shape? I think one of the silver linings of, everything going on this year uh you know with how much we're we're forced to what we think of as reduce our lives and you know we have to strip away so many things that we use to form our identity you know every day before work i go to this coffee shop or once a week you know I go to this record store. I do this thing. I do that thing. Like we fill up our schedules with these things that, that compose our identities. And when you can't do any of that stuff, you're left with a lot of time looking in the mirror and kind of wondering who you are without all the stuff. Right. Um, for me, that has been a roller coaster, you know, fighting feelings of, of despair and 
trying to cope with loneliness. Um, also these moments of, of real clarity and moments of hope. So once I realized that I was in the middle of making an album, you know, the lyrics on these songs are, I collaborated on them, but they are largely written by the people singing them. And so when I would go out to these artists, I would just send them music and say, you know, you like any of these things I sent? It'd be awesome to hear you try a pass over them. The only rule is to be honest. You know, just be honest. How you feel now, how you feel today. Maybe how you felt last week or how you hope you feel tomorrow, but no one has to sing about, you know, wearing masks or <laughs> hand sanitizer, but, but just be honest. And um, the result... I think is a really beautiful kaleidoscope of the highs and lows uh, that we've all been going through and not just happy and sad. There's a lot of in-betweens. You have a song like in a new place, which to me is the perfect capture of that. Okay. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to get this under control. You know, if I, if I, if I do X, Y, and Z, I can bring about the end of the pandemic all by myself. I just got to work super hard and get activated, you know? Like, there's all these little different things that we go through on our good days and bad days. And um, we just tried to, we tried to cover all that on this album. The way you worked to create The Room um, reminds me of the story behind the Postal Service, the musical group not the beleaguered mm -hmm. government agency. Um, a, a lot has changed in terms of technology and the ability to record with artists from a distance since, you know, Ben and Jimmy put that together. Uh, but I know personally, just as an amateur musician, that it, I find it difficult to trade beats and riffs over email and come up with anything cohesive and actually finish anything. I've tried a few times. Um, what was the process like for you putting together this collection and not being able uh, to be in the same room with your collaborators. You know, it's always, it's a bit sad to think about how many good times I've had in the room with collaborators and artists. I mean, some of the best memories of my, of my entire life are those days or nights, you know, mo moment of inspiration hits the whole room you write a song in 90 minutes, everyone thinks it's a hit or thinks it's important or whatever it is. And you're all cheersing and, you know, drumming on the wall and shit. Like it is sad to think about, um, you know, it probably would have been two or three nights like that since March. And there haven't been, um, that being said, there was something beautiful about the way we got to collaborate on this album because, you know, especially when we were in the really in the thick of making this, everybody's at home. We're talking April, May, a little bit of June. Like, obviously, nobody's on tour, but people aren't even like doing anything. People are just at home learning how to garden and cook sourdough bread. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, so the, the beauty of it was that I, I think 
that I had to remove um, some of that producer nature of being in the room and standing over somebody while they're cutting a vocal or whatever it is. It's like, for all I know, Alessia cut this in her bedroom. For all I know, John Robert cut his vocal in his parents' basement, you know, Lido, maybe she sang hers in, in her art gallery. I have, I have no clue. But what I think is so cool is that these artists were writing, singing, and recording in their own comfort zones, in their own spaces, on their own time. And trying to get people out of their comfort zones is 99% of what I do normally. So mm-hmm. it was a really beautiful process to see these artists flourish on their own time in their own way. And as a result, come across with amazingly honest, sincere songwriting and performances. So uh, I was doing some research for a story, another story about live streamed music events. And uh, I actually came across a video of Locale AM at iMusicCast back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the matches and stuff, they played there a lot. Mm -hmm. Back when I went to shows at iMusicCast as a teenager or like when I would wait for a streaming media player to load one single song on my parents' um, uh, colorful balloon iMac thing, uh, it would have been like ha- hard to imagine making music work in the way that 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 you're you've done here, and that the way so many music musicians are are making and promoting their art right now. Um, and I still have a hard time seeing how streams could take the place of live music, and I don't think anybody thinks that they can. But I wonder what you think about the viability of this sort of mode. Um, after doing this project um, and after doing the, the nice live. The thing that can't be replaced, right? Like bumping shoulders with people. Um, the sort of like power and energy behind like a drummer hitting a snare drum within a hundred feet of you. There's nothing Nothing that I've seen that can replace that energy, how visceral it is to see live music, to be surrounded by your peers in human form, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the big things about going to shows, right, is, and it's funny that you bring up iMusicCast, it's actually a great example, is the sense of of, uh, community at a live Mm -hmm. show whether it's, you know, in a a bottom of the hill in San Francisco or Bill Graham Civic, whatever it is, people feel a sense of belonging, a sense of community when they're all there to see an artist they love. And one thing I have experienced um, while developing this live stream is I, I saw a community come together with my own eyes. In fact, I saw a community come together that was um, able to really dig in and really even collaborate with one another. I mean, the people in the, um, in the nice live community 
have connected outside of the stream, have worked together on music. On my birthday, they they about 10 of them got together and made me a birthday song that they surprised me with and I ex- like they like tricked me into playing it on air without realizing what I was playing. That's um, great. And amazing. So, you know, while there are some sort of aspects which are largely physical that are hard to replace from the live show experience, I will say we found a way to create an amazing community and I look forward to growing it um, as much as I can while keeping it, you know, intimate and uh, and special for the people that, that tune in. All right. Um, well, uh, you can listen to uh, The Room now. It's live and you can uh, read more about it uh, on our website, sfweekly.com under the music tab. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Ricky. Thank you so much. Great. Great to be here. Great to talk to you. Cool. We'll be right back. We're back with Michael Huffman, general manager of Seven Stills, the San Francisco brewery, distillery, and restaurant. While the pandemic has tragically forced many local bars and restaurants to shutter for good, Seven Stills remains open, serving food and drinks to customers outside and to go. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I was hoping we could start off um, by talking about what it's been like trying to stay afloat during this very challenging chapter that we've all been going through as a, as a bar and a restaurant. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been extremely challenging like everybody else. And as you mentioned, a lot of our peers are not um, doing as well as, as we are. Um, and we, you know, experienced some, some luck and some good fortune as well as um, a lot of roadblocks and a, a lot of challenges. Uh, you know, we closed um, for several months during the first shelter in place order. And then, started gradually reopening to the public as, as San Francisco um, law allowed us to. And we're kind of getting ready to, you know, restart indoor dining. Um, we were feeling it out and feeling our comfort level with that, but and that no longer seems like the case. 
Um, but we did a couple of really fun and exciting things during our downtime, and um, one of which was to revamp our kitchen and cocktail program here. We had a lot of time to kind of rethink the whole program, and so we revamped some things and changed some things um, and kind of put our best foot forward with the idea of, of reopening to the public. Um, since then, um, we've had, like I said, a couple challenges, and indoor dining seems to be put on kind of an indefinite hold. So we've been focusing on, as you mentioned, our, our outdoor uh, patio dining, and we're very fortunate to have a, a large outdoor covered patio here and outdoor space in both of our locations, um, as well as um, trying to get as much to-go business um, as we can and partnering with delivery apps and, and all that kind of good stuff. You know, it's been challenging. Um, we, you know, week to week, you know, we've had to make a lot of decisions to, to kind of survive, and I think that's we're in kind of survival mode now, but we have a, a good attitude about it. We feel like if we can continue to be creative and continue to push ourselves that we will survive this. I think that's just kind of, you know, where we're at right now. We're just trying to uh, really carefully examine what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and look at our P&Ls and our numbers and our finances and our budget, not every week, but almost every day um, to make sure that we're not spending money or, or wasting money that we desperately need to survive. And then just kind of trying to keep a positive attitude and push ourselves in the right direction. What have you been finding does work in terms of to-go stuff, um, both on the drink side and, and the the food side? So I think that, you know, one of the positive things that has happened um, from the loosening of restrictions has been the allowing of establishments and food and beverage establishments to do to-go cocktails, um, which has been a really great thing for us. Um, so we designed um, a couple of our really great new craft cocktails to be scaled into a three cocktail pouch that we um, allow people to take out from here. And then we also distribute through Caviar and DoorDash and, and online partners as well. And we're also actually shipping um, all of our beverages in all West Coast states right now too, because there's been some further loosening of restrictions there as well. So that certainly drives revenue and helps the bottom line, but also something really cool that we weren't able to do before. Um, we built this facility with a really great craft cocktail bar um, with the idea that we could showcase the um, brand and kind of the diverse nature of all of our different spirits through craft cocktails. Um, and so we've really been enjoying experimenting with that and developing this program um, and being able to do it to go. Um, and then with the food as well, you know, we, we have just been continuing to edit and um, work on our dishes so that we know that they travel really well. Uh, we've come up with some really cool like little picnic snack packs that you can take to the park with you or take to the beach with you. But the first process and all of that was um, cooking food and then letting it sit in a box for a half hour and then eating it and making sure that it traveled really well. And I think <laughs> okay. Great restaurants have done that as well. You know, it's really important that if you, um, it takes a half hour for your caviar driver to get your hamburger to you, that it still tastes delicious. Um, so that's something we've worked on since the beginning. And I think that we're making, you know, kind of new strides in that every single week as well. Okay. So um, let's, uh, let's, Let's get a little uh, history lesson on Seven Stills for those who are unfamiliar. Um, one of the the things that you uh, kind of put you on the map was distilling um, whiskey from craft beer. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when the company started in 2013, the original idea was making whiskey out of fully formed craft beers. Um, our founders... Um, you know, one of them was really into craft brewing and the other was really into distilling. And they kind of had this aha moment when they realized that all whiskey is essentially made out of some version of beer, but it tends to be a fairly simple formula for the beer. And that most of the character comes in the aging process and in the barrels and 
and different things than the actual base beer itself. Um, so the first whiskey that really put us on the map um, that they made back then in 2013 was a whiskey called Choka Smoke, which is a made from a chocolate oatmeal stout. And so all of the characters of that really roasty, dark um, oatmeal stout come across in the whiskey. Tim, one of our founders, likes to say it's like they're extracting, you know, the alcohol out of the beer, um, and it tastes, you know, very, very similar to the the original product. And then it goes through an aging process and all that kind of stuff too. But that, that was the idea. And so throughout the history of the company, they've kept expanding that idea and looking into different styles of beer, like IPAs being another um, big part of what we're doing is we have a whole series of IPA whiskeys, and that's something that's very different. Um, Choka Smoke um, has a lot of similarities to an American bourbon or other type of whiskey just in the flavor profile, but an IPA whiskey tastes like something you probably never have before. And so I guess it would make sense then uh, to use these whiskeys and these spirits um, that come from uh, a craft beer sort of base and then recombine them into um, a beer cocktail. Uh, this week we have um, a story written by our staff writer, Grace Lee, about um, the Hazy McLaren, a beer cocktail made with um, Seven Stills California Courage Vodka and your five pounds um, Hazy IPA. Can you tell us about this cocktail and um, maybe start by telling us about beer cocktails more generally? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. Um, yeah, beer cocktails have been around for a long time, but I do think that they kind of run the whole gamut of being interesting and maybe not so interesting. Or, I, you know, I feel like when I first heard about them years ago, it was because people didn't have access to a full bar, didn't have a liquor license. And so they were trying to make a, a low ABV cocktail out of the ingredients that they had. Um, whereas we're approaching this very differently because we have a very developed cocktail program here and have access to you know, spirits like obviously the vodka that's in the Hazy McLaren. But we also wanted to have a low ABV cocktail um, on the menu. And we started to realize that our IPA, um, five pounds, which we also distill into whiskey, but this is the, the beer version we're talking about here, um, had this really interesting floral profile, um, like a lot of IPAs do from, from the hops that are added to them. We thought that it would go really well with an Italian Amari or bitter, um, such as Capoletti, which is um, one of the ingredients in the cocktail, which is very similar to Aperol for anybody who's not had Campari before. And traditionally, you would see something very much like this served in Italy, but um, substituting a sparkling wine like Prosecco for the IPA. But we kind of had this idea that what if we replaced the sparkling wine with an IPA and how would all those bitter, fruity, tropical, aromatic notes pair um, with this Italian liqueur, and it, it turned out amazing. Um, and so I think it kind of covered a couple bases for us. It's the first cocktail you see on our menu, and it's a low ABV cocktail. It's a cocktail where we thought we could also feature our California Courage vodka, um, as well as our five pounds beer, um, and then it's super refreshing. All right. Um, well, I want to thank you, Michael, for coming on the podcast today. You can read uh, Grace's story on our website, sfweekly.com, under the dining tab. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's great. Yeah. Thank you so much again for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced, engineered, and recorded by me, Nick Veronin, 
The songs you've been hearing in between segments are Real Magic and No Stone from Ricky Reed's album The Room. Our theme music was composed by The Armature. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Apple or Spotify, follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sfweeklypodcast, and check out our website, sfweekly.com. See you next week.